for four months now, we've been walking through uh, this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians. And during these four months, we've explored three of the letter's six chapters. Uh, And I've said it repeatedly, but I'll say it again. Paul's letter to the Ephesians is uh, is different from his other letters. It doesn't seem at all that it's a a response to a crisis. Check out 1 Corinthians. All of the topics that Paul's talking about seem to be response to somebody doing something wrong or having a theological question or something like that. But Ephesians is different in that it's almost as if Paul actually has a little bit of lull in his life. After all, he's in prison. And uh, and he just gets to write the letter maybe he's always wanted to write. A letter about how God actually sees the church. We look around at our own congregation and maybe any other congregation and we see, yeah, a lot of great people, but we also see how the foibles and sins and frustrations that doing life together in Christian community can offer. And sometimes it doesn't look like we're any different than the world outside the church. Uh, Oftentimes, maybe the world is doing a better job at some things than we are. And so Paul writes this letter to say, you know what, God actually thinks much higher of the church than you do. And here's how it ought to look. Here's what I really believe uh, about the church. Here's what I died to, to make in the church. It's a letter about our identity. And of course, Paul being Paul, believes that our identity is completely wrapped up in who God is. So he tells us some things about what God has done. And and just as a reminder, I'm going to ask us to say all these things together. So God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. You can say these out loud when they pop up there. Chosen us before the foundation of the world. Predestined us to adoption as his sons and daughters. Redeemed us through the blood of Jesus. Forgiven us. Made known to us the mystery of his will given us the Holy Spirit, raised Jesus from the dead, loved us, made us alive together with Christ, created good work for us, made us united to Christ through the cross. And then Paul says that in Christ we are these things. We're chosen. We're God's own inheritance. Christ's body once dead but made alive in Christ, God's workmanship, new creations of God's household, a temple, a dwelling for the living God. We are the manifold wisdom of God revealed, sons and daughters of God our Father. Therefore, it's with all of that in mind that Paul now begins his fourth chapter. And I want to ask you to stand as we read Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to persevere Uh, excuse me, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. 
Lord, make these words, make this letter, make this truth come alive in our hearts. Lord, this is challenging, challenging, meaty scripture. We need your help to not only help us understand it, but to apply it, to live it. Help us to want to do that. Do a miracle in our hearts today, Lord. Amen. You may be seated. In all of the first three chapters of Ephesians, Ephesians, Paul gives us one command to remember. Remember basically all that stuff that we just read off the screen. Remember. Remember who God is, what he's done, who you are in him. That's it. That's all he commands in those first three chapters. Now, of course, there's been implications as we've moved along of how we ought to live based on those scriptures, but one command. But in chapter 4, Paul is going to start giving us some commands, some things to do, some applications. Paul helps flesh out the application of those first three chapters, beginning here in chapter 4. So in our text this evening, the first thing that Paul commands us to do is to walk. Now, please don't get up and walk away. Let me explain first. Just give me a minute. The term walk is a biblical way of saying to live. So walk this way means to live this way. Walk in a worthy manner means to live in a worthy manner. In much of scripture, following God is akin to walking or traveling or following God on some kind of pilgrimage. The language of travel or walking is dynamic, isn't it? It's not sit still, it's do something, it's walk, it's go forward. It usually is intentional. Walking has a connotation of going somewhere. The truth is, is that life is never neutral. You might think you're resting or doing nothing, but life is never neutral. We are either becoming more and more like Jesus, or more and more like the world organized without Jesus. Paul tells us to walk or to live in a manner that's worthy of the calling by which we've been called. It's a reminder That with great blessing, like all that great stuff we read on the screen about you and I being chosen and adopted into this wonderful family of God, of Jesus dying for us, it's a reminder that with all of that great blessing comes also responsibility. Following Jesus is not easy. In fact, Jesus himself talked about taking the narrow way as opposed to the broad way, right? He said the way, the gate is is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and many go that way. But the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. I, for one, appreciate that honesty. So often we hear part of the gospel, Jesus died for your sins and you'll be saved. Believe it, and you'll be saved. Yes, absolutely. But what does believe mean? What does believe mean? It means to trust. If we trust Jesus, that he actually died for our sins and that we're saved, then we should also trust all the other things that he calls us to. Right? There's a story about two military recruiters. Maybe you've heard this one. They go to a high school. There's a Navy guy and a Marine Corps guy. And so, like, there's no Coast Guard guy. Coast Guard doesn't have to recruit. But... (laughs) 
But anyway, so the principal says, okay, you guys have a half hour. You have to divvy up between yourselves. And uh, so the Navy guy goes, oh, I'm getting up there first. And he takes 25 of the 30 minutes, and he's telling all these high school students, Navy's awesome. You know, it's pretty chill. You get to travel around the world. You get to do all these awesome things, right? So the Marine Corps guy now just has five minutes left. And he gets up, and he just stares down the crowd for four minutes and 50 seconds. Stares into each one's eyes. And with that last few seconds, he says, there's maybe three of you who could make it in the Marine Corps. So after that assembly, of course, everybody's over at the Marine Corps table signing up. The Navy guy's just like, I don't know, looking at a PowerPoint presentation or something. But, but the, <laughs> God help us if we think that following Jesus is easy. Yeah, you might get to go on a mission trip and see the world, but it's not just about the vacation, right? It's, it's not easy. Following Jesus, though, is the most life-giving and eternal life-giving way of living that I can imagine. And so Paul tells us that based on all of this wonderful news of what God has done and who God declares us to me, he, he tells us, live in a manner worthy of that calling by which you've been called. And, and so what is that calling? What is that calling? To be the people God created us to be. In short, it's become like Jesus. Become like Jesus. Not on our own strength, but in Christ with his spirit. So here in the beginning of chapter 4, Paul gives us a command to walk in a worthy manner. And what would you expect to be that worthy manner? Where would, where would you start if you're writing this letter to a kind of a, a newer church or something like that? Where, where is walking in a worthy manner? Where would you start? Does he start with doctrine? Many of us might start with doctrine. You've got to get your doctrine right. And certainly doctrine is very important. But Paul here doesn't start with that. He doesn't start with make sure your atonement theology is, is ship shape. Does he start with things that occupy our evangelical press? Like uh, does he push a certain political candidate or a certain political party? Does he talk about the issues of civic government? No, he, he doesn't start there. He doesn't start with our politics or our worship style or our stance on drinking or the mode of baptism. He, he doesn't focus on those things that so often divide the church. Just the opposite. Paul says, be unified. If you're going to walk in a worthy manner, be unified as the church. But there's more than just that mere command. First of all, Paul reminds us that he himself is a prisoner of the Lord, right? Why does he do that? Because he's a prisoner of the Lord. He's actually in prison in Rome for preaching a gospel of unity that the Jews and Gentiles in Christ are now one. So he's actually walking the talk. I think that's pretty good leadership. And then he has tact about this. You know, Paul's an apostle. He's got credentials. He could just tell us, you guys get with the program, all right? Do this. But he doesn't just bark out that order. Instead, he nuances it. He says, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Now, that may still sound like a strong command, but listen to this. That word implore in Greek is parakaleo. So kaleo means to call out. So if it's just kaleo, walk in a manner worthy of you've been called, I'm calling you out to walk this way. But para means to come alongside. You've heard of a parachurch ministry like Young Life, which is a great parachurch ministry, or The Inn, or uh, what's that other one? 
CCF. Yeah, so those, those ministries, what do they do? They're parachurch ministries. That means they come alongside the church to help the church, right? Parakaleo means come to my side. I'm walking this way too. I will walk with you. So it's not some dictator just calling us to do things that he himself isn't doing. He's saying, follow Jesus as you follow me. We'll do this together. That's awesome. In essence, he's saying, I, the prisoner of the Lord, call you to walk with me in a manner worthy of the calling by which we were called. It's good leadership. Oh, and one more observation. Who here is Paul calling to live this way? Yeah, certainly the guy who went to Regent or Bible College, right? No. You know, he's calling all of us. Jeff, I saw that preemptively. Good job. He's calling all of us, the church. You don't have to know a lot of stuff to do this. You don't have to know any original languages. You don't have to know a lot of theology. You have to be willing to lay your life down and follow Jesus. That's all of us. It's powerful. So what's the big deal? Unity. Can't we all just get along? Right? Dallas Willard says, no, we can't all just get along. We have to become the kind of people who can get along. We have to become the kind of people who can get along. Now, Willard must have been reading Ephesians when he wrote that because Paul addresses the same idea. He mentions four qualities that we must develop in our lives if we're going to live in unity with one another. We must become the kinds of people who are humble and gentle and patient and tolerant in love. So let's start with humility. Humility is kind of... I don't know, trendy in our culture. It wasn't cool at all in the Greco-Roman culture. All right? Uh, if, if, humility was rarely used, the, word, the Greek word there, and it was used in pejorative senses in Greek poetry and things like that. So if you were humble, it meant that you were weak, that people would walk over you. It was not a good thing at all. And in fact, weakness in that first century Greco-Roman world was despised. I don't mean just... Eh, that's not cool. I mean, like if, if a child was born outside of a Christian or Jewish home, and that child had, well, it could just be a girl, and maybe they had too many girls and they just wanted boys, they would expose it, leave it out in the desert. But if it had anything that uh, someone might define as a birth defect or something like that, that was weakness, and you did not want that in your family. So people would expose those children. And by the way, it was the early church that started adoption. It was those early Christians that went out to the desert and took those children who were exposed into their families. But that's another, another story. So humility was not a good word. It was not a good word that Paul is, Paul is calling these people to. There was no such thing in that world as government assistance or welfare programs for those with special needs. If you're born physically weak, you were just done. Fast forward to our culture. We have a bit more compassion on the weak but only so long as it doesn't really inconvenience us, right? <clears throat> At least not too much or too often. We like the air of humility. You know, we love maybe the athlete that says, you know, oh, how'd you score that touchdown, Marshawn Lynch? Well, it was my offensive line and my, it was a team effort. You know, we like that. We like people that deflect, um, you know, so they're not arrogant. That's kind of a, a U.S. cultural thing. But most of us are resistant to true humility, because frankly, I, I'm, I'm in this too. We're self-centered. We think about ourselves a lot. In my devotional reading this morning, I came across a quote from the 16th century bishop, Francis de Sales. He writes this, which 
maybe we don't all identify with, but he says, We often say that we're nothing, that we are misery itself and the refuse of the world. I, I hope you're not saying that about yourself, but you get the point. We often say that we're humble, but we would be very sorry if anyone took us at our word and told others that we were really as humble as we say. Right? It's okay if we're the ones in control of how people see us. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm humble. Oh, yeah, it was a team effort. But I guarantee you, if the press or other people started giving everyone else props and it wasn't coming back on you, hey, wait a minute, I did have to run the ball in. Come on! See, true humility is not thinking less about yourself like you're a worm or you're, or you're not as good. It's thinking about yourself less, right? True humility actually causes us to see other people for the value that they really have. It's setting aside our own agendas, our own desire. Not our own desires, our own desires for self-preservation. Setting aside those things for the benefit of others. That's humility. Humility is a quality that Jesus exemplified, especially in that passage in Philippians that Ryan read earlier. In that beautiful chapter, Paul reminds us that Jesus emptied himself and became obedient. On your and my behalf, he came obedient to the Father, even obedient to the point of death on a cross. And it was for that reason, by the way, it was for the reason that Jesus was able to humble himself, that he was exalted. That's what the scriptures tell us. That when we humble ourselves, God is the one who does the exalting. I'll tell you what, I'd much rather have God exalt me than you, frankly. Even though I don't live that way all the time. I need help. I need help in this area. If we're to have true unity in Christ, we need, we need to lay down our lust for self-promotion and self-preservation so we can bless others. So we can bless others and trust God to exalt us. So the second quality that Paul exhorts us to embody is gentleness. Right? Gentleness. If humility is an attitude, gentleness is how that attitude is lived out. Gentleness rejects our urge to be right, to get even, to lash out in violence, whether verbal or physical. And gentleness is painfully absent in much of our culture. Even in the church, we are quick to get offended <clears throat> and to retaliate. Even, you know, you look on the media and there's this pastor from this movement in the church is firing against this pastor or this theologian. And, and it's mean and it's vicious. And, and sometimes it, it feels like a political race as opposed to the church talking with one another. Think about your workplace, maybe. The environment can seem cutthroat and maybe... There's violence that takes place at the water cooler. I'm talking about the kind of violence where you're cutting each other down. Or maybe at the watering hole after work. You know, certain groups of people from the office go out together. And, oh, uh, you know, that, that's so-and-so. They're not cutting their weight. Or, you know, they're always late to work. I'm always picking up their slack. And it is, it's just the little subtle things that cut down people instead of build them up. Maybe... The place gentleness is most, most tested is at home. It, I just confess, I mean, it's scary how fast I can go on a peaceful level zero to level ten like that. When one of my kids doesn't you know, listen to what I say or they back talk. I mean, it's, and, and how you respond to that is an opportunity to 
to be a good parent and to show some respect in the proper way or to lash out and not to be gentle. We do violence to one another in the things that we say and how we say them. It's not all physical. Like, I think it's obvious. Like, if you're punching people when they make you mad, don't do that. Like, that's not gentle. I don't, I look out at you guys, I, I don't see that happening all the time. But a harsh comment, I mean, it might seem small to you, but it crushes the spirit of somebody else. Our kids, guys, our wives, and wives us too. I mean, we're not all as tough as we make out to be. I'm a sensitive flower. <laughs> That's going on Facebook. Yeah. <clears throat> I withdraw that from the record. You know, I, I, seriously though, I'm not talking about this hokey, you're okay, I'm okay self-esteem stuff. I'm talking about when our words detract from the fact, not the idea, the fact that every person is made in God's image. Think about that before you lash out, before you react. We need to embody gentleness if we're going to have an environment where people are free to grow, where people are free to ask questions, where they feel safe enough to do that. By the way, that's one of our core values is to be able to be a culture of listening and questioning and learning. Seems to be a safe place for that. Third, Paul calls us to patience. Listen, we all have an idea of how things ought to go, of how fast things ought to go. Every one of us has expectations. We have expectations of how our job should turn out, of how fast we should get done with school, of what kind of grades we should get, of how that person should react with us, right? We have expectations of how the church should be. We have expectations about how our spouses should act or how our children should act, how people should not be in the left lane unless they're going fast or passing someone, especially if they're from Canada and have 100 gallons of milk in their trunk. That wasn't patient or humble. So I defer to biblical scholar Klein Snodgrass who writes, in order to have patience... We must renounce our tyranny of our own agendas. All of us have some sense of timing about when events should happen. One that rarely agree agrees with anybody else's sense of timing. Right? The idea that we should not have to wait on anything or anyone is merely another form of self-centeredness. Ouch. That's talking to me. In the context of the church, we need patience with people. We're not all at the same place. I know that's a newsflash. We are not all at the same place. We don't all mature at the same pace. We are not all perfect. When people let us down or we get disappointed, it's easy to build up resentment towards other people. Oh, and we're real passive-aggressive in Bellingham, too, so we're not going to say it to anybody. But we just let it kind of build up on the inside. And we might think we're good at holding those feelings in, but then we build up these walls. We build up these walls that are silent and they're actually um, caustic. You know, they will hurt us. Let's just be honest for a minute. It, we can't like everybody. Like, I'm sure there's people in you that I just can't see myself ever hanging out with Chris on a, you know, <laughs> I'm, an, I'm a dork. I mean, you, some people are like that. Uh, but 
you can't like everyone. You, you, you can't connect deeply with every single person, even in a small church like this. Like, it just can't happen sociologically. Not everyone at a church can be your absolute bestest friend, your BFF, right? Because there would be too many BFFs. And then that whole term would be diluted, and now that would be a problem. But we are not called to be everybody's best friend. That's not what Jesus calls us to. He calls us to something actually more important and harder to do. He calls us to love one another. He calls us to love one another. Even the frustrating people, even the dorks like this. And that means, number four, we need to engage in tolerant love. Another way of saying that biblically is the term long-suffering. Sounds great, doesn't it? Long-suffering. This term shows up in both the Old Testament and New Testament, and it shows up most often to describe one thing. God's love for us. And boy, does he have to have long-suffering love for me and for you. It endures, this long-suffering love, it endures shortcomings of others, even repeated failures. Just remember, everyone, everyone, the person sitting next to you, has a story. That person with the abrasive personality, they have a story. That person who is unreliable, there's a reason for that. Like, people don't like to just disappoint people all the time. That person who never seems to pull their weight has a story. And hey, <laughs> Jesus puts up with you, so extend the favor. That's pretty scriptural, by the way. Okay, so I sense, I sense the yeah buts out there. Because I've got them. I've got them. Yeah, but, but it sounds like Paul is telling us to just let people walk on us. Yeah, but what about calling people to accountability? We're supposed to grow in Christ here. Yeah, but what if a person is taking advantage of me or the system or the church? Well, first, this passage does not at all ignore sin. Paul himself is very firm with unrepentant sin. I mean, remember that guy in... First Corinthians 5, you know, he's like, I don't know, having some relations with his dad's new wife and his stepmom or something like that. And, and, and so Paul, and he's unrepentant about it. I mean, that's the big deal. He's like, he's unrepentant. He's just out in the open with this flagrant sin. And the church is like, what do we do? Well, I guess we just let him come in. And so Paul has to come in and intervene and say, you know, this isn't healthy. It isn't healthy for the larger community to allow this to go on. And it isn't healthy for the person in sin who now, because you've accepted them, doesn't think that they're in sin anymore. The caveat is that that person that Paul is disciplining is a Christian. A person that has said, I'm following Jesus. We have, there's a completely different bar for that type of person. right? So he doesn't say, just do away with sin. But he does say this. Well, actually, Jesus does. If someone is repentant, if they are willing to make the steps... We've got to forgive them. How many times, Master? Seven times? That's a big one. No, 70 times seven. Basically forever. It's code word for a lot of times. More than you can probably handle. Second, this passage, it's not about being weak. In fact, I don't think doing these things is possible if you're weak. You can fake these qualities, but you can't live them if you're weak. Only if you're strong in who you are and strong in Christ can we actually be humble and gentle and patient and long-suffering. I bet you knew that already. You know how I knew that? Because you're not very good at it. 
Me neither. I recognize my weakness as I match myself up against these qualities. So how do we get good at them? How are we supposed to strive for unity if we, you know, we're kind of weak? First, we pray that prayer that we studied last week. We pray the prayer that I shared in the prayer time in the middle of the service. Ephesians three fourteen through 21. We have to trust that God can do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think or seek. And we need to pray that he would strengthen us with his power in the inner person. The power of the Holy Spirit. And that Christ would actually take up residence in me. And tap me on the shoulder when I'm about ready to respond in frustration and say, "Mm, Really? Think about that. And give me the power to act differently. Second, and this is counterintuitive, we have to participate in frustrating Christian community. I, I know people, uh, when I used to visit Alaska for Coast Guard work and stuff, there's a whole, whole communities of people who just go there to get away. Uh, some people, their dream is to, I, want, I just want a big plot of land out in the county, so that, and here's the reason, so I don't have to talk to anybody. Right? Well, you can be really patient when you're the only one living on 10 acres of land, because I mean, there's nothing to test you. <clears throat> or there's people that say, I, I want to follow Jesus, but his church really ticks me off because <laughs> those people are all screwed up. So I'm just going to try and do it without the church. But I, I think, I mean, besides, if you want to talk theology, I can do that later with why the church is important. But I think for this passage, we need this. We need community. We need our small groups. We need we need my kids spilling water on my lap when I'm eating dinner after the worship service. You know, we need that kind of stuff to test us, to stretch us. Because that's how we grow. Is being committed in partnership to the, the worship and to the mission of Jesus together. And it's only by sticking it out and committing to someone bigger than ourselves that, that's going to develop those qualities in us. Being in community with me, a sinner, saved by grace and trying to follow Jesus, that is what's going to build these qualities in you. Why? Because one of these times we're going to do some project and I'm going to forget your name. I'm going to forget to give you props. I'm going to screw it up. I'm going to frustrate you. You'll want to do me violence on how you, t- on how you talk about me and how you think about me. I'm going to try your patience when I'm not the pastor you want me to be. I've let you down, and I'll do it again. In love, of course, to help you grow. Uh, I'm going to take longer to grow in some areas of my life than you're comfortable with. In some areas, you might die before I ever complete them. And you're going to be tested in your long suffering because of the power of Christ in you and because of your commitment to the partnership in the gospel together. You're going to grow. And I'm going to grow (laughs) because of you. Right? And you're going to grow from the person on your left and on your right and in front. And by. We, we need to stir it up and sharpen one another, challenge one another. We will grow with Christ in us when we commit ourselves to this imperfect and sometimes sinful group who's chosen, we've been chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before God. The one way we will not grow and attain true unity is by making unity our goal. 
I know that sounds weird. If we make unity our goal, on any terms, anything goes, that's not at all what Paul is talking about. Paul is not saying, without Christ. He's saying unity with Christ is our goal. He says there is one body, that's the church, and one spirit, and one Lord, Jesus, and one faith, and one baptism, and one God, and one Father, who is over all and through all and in all. We are only one if we're unified in Christ. Not even mission is what unifies us, although it's something we should be about. We're not unified in singing great songs together. We're not unified in our ability to get along. We're not unified in our ability to join together in one building. The unity God calls us to is unity in Him, one faith, one baptism. Paul isn't talking here about the kind of baptism, whether it's an infant or adult, whether uh, you, know, you have to get dunked all the way under or if it's sprinkling. He doesn't talk about that stuff. Not here. What he says is one baptism, because what does baptism mean? That we are dying to an old life and being raised to walk with Christ. It's in Christ. That's why he mentions it here. Dying with Christ. Raised with Christ. New life with Christ. Christ is the center of our unity. And the world will know Christ through the church. I've said this before, but I really think most oftentimes in our culture... There are two conversions that take place. There's a conversion that takes place to Christian community. I think that before people, a lot of people are willing to hear about our Christ, they're skeptical about the Christians. Seen the bumper sticker? Dear God, save me from your followers. Right? So there, there's, a, there's a conversion that takes place to Christian community. I, I wish Becky Ramsey was here three years ago when we started softball. We're in the city league and stuff, so we had, and I think, uh, Jackie, you might have been around, but it was uh, Jason Souders who invited her to come. She wasn't going to any church and anything, and so like three weeks in, she goes, oh my gosh, you're a pastor? I wasn't doing anything wrong. (laughs) But I love that. I love the fact that, you know, it's not the first thing that has to be in people's face, but like she warmed up to our community and then was like, oh, okay, I can be myself here. Yeah, then I can come and hear about your Jesus. Right? And that's that second conversion that takes place is wanting to know about our Christ. Are we becoming the, t- uh, the kind of people who can get along? Are we praying for Christ to take up residence inside us? Praying for those qualities of humility and, and gentleness and patience and long-suffering? Jesus died to make unity in him possible. How far are we willing to go to maintain it, to pursue it? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for giving everything to rescue us. I am so thankful that you you care deeply about each one that certainly you know uh, the broken places in our hearts and desire healing, that certainly um, we have hope that you've rescued us. But I am also thankful that you didn't rescue us merely as individuals, but you've rescued us to be your people, a people that reflect 
your goodness and your character. And so much of that is done in the visible expression of unity among us. Lord Jesus, will you be the center of our lives, of our individual lives, so that you can be the center of our church life? Would you pour out your spirit in us? Lord, would you challenge each of us this evening with one growing edge, with one way that we can grow into you, into these qualities that you so exemplified. Help us to be more humble and gentle and patient and willing to suffer the long term in community. Lord, mark us with joy and hope, hope that defies our world. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.